Welcome back to our weekly book reviews on the Unknown Friends podcast. Today's episode is the 31st episode of season two. And in case any of you longtime listeners are wondering, we will be doing 40 total episodes this season as opposed to the 30 episodes we did last year in season one. So be sure to stay tuned because we've got 10 more book reviews to go this season, today's included, and I hope you enjoy what I have in store. Thanks for listening today, and in case you're new, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and the plays I write at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. You'll find that link in the episode description. Now, without further ado, let's discuss Rudyard Kipling's novel, Captain's Courageous. First, some background about Rudyard Kipling himself. He's got an interesting life story. He was, of course, an English writer of all sorts of works, novels, short stories, poetry, journalism. Some of his most famous writings are The Jungle Book and Kim and the Just So stories and also the poem If. His parents were artistic people. His mother was a poet and his father an illustrator. And he was their first child, and they named him Rudyard after the place where they had first met, Rudyard Lake in Staffordshire, England. So he was born in 1865 in India, where his father worked. And when he was five, he was sent with his little sister to England for school, which was not a great experience for him, but he remained in England until he was almost 17, at which time he returned to India to take up a job his father had secured for him as a newspaper editor. He wrote for a couple of different papers for the next six years and was able to contribute quite a few short stories to be published as well as his nonfiction. Then at age 23... Having written quite a lot already and published several volumes of his short stories, he left his job with the newspaper, took the money he'd earned, and spent six months traveling gradually to London by way of Asia and North America. And I love this. While he was in the U.S., he decided to drop in on Mark Twain whose work he greatly admired. And so he literally just showed up at Twain's house and rang the doorbell and ended up having a nice long conversation with him about Tom Sawyer and so forth. Anyway, funny story. So eventually, Kipling did end up in London, where he hoped to make a literary career for himself. He encountered some early difficulties and a little success, And after a couple of years there, he married the sister of a young writer and literary agent with whom Kipling had become friends. This brother and sister were actually American from a distinguished, though slightly unorthodox, New England family. And shortly after Rudyard and the young lady were married, they moved to Vermont near her family estate. And they started their family there, eventually having three children, though the eldest tragically died from pneumonia at just seven years old. Kipling was able to write profusely during these years in America, and it was at this time that he wrote, among other things, his novel Captain's Courageous. 
However, in the summer of 1896, just after he'd finished writing Captain's Courageous, he took his family and moved back to England due to some personal and political tensions that had been brewing in America. So the family lived in Devon for a short time and then Sussex, and eventually, in 1902, Kipling bought the home in which he would live for the rest of his life, a house called Bateman's, which you should really look up. It's a lovely 17th century home, which had no electricity or bathrooms, I believe, when Kipling bought it. But he and his family just loved the place, and if you look up pictures of it, you can you can imagine why. So Bateman's. So he lived there until his death, and he bought as much land around the house as he could as well, eventually amounting to around 300 acres, which helped give him the privacy he wanted, as he was quite famous by this time. When World War I came, the family faced another tragedy with the death of another child. Kipling's son John was killed in action in France at age 18, and as you can guess, this was devastating to his father. Interestingly, I read that as Kipling tried to cope with this loss, and with the other spells of depression that he suffered from at times throughout his life, one thing he would do was read Jane Austen aloud to his family. And he eventually wrote a short story called The Janeites, which was about a group of World War I soldiers who were part of a little secret society for reading Jane Austen to help them get through the atrocities of the war. Because as one of them says in the story, there's no one to touch Jane when you're in a tight place. I, I found that fascinating, just loving Jane Austen as I do. And coincidental, since we're actually going to be discussing Jane Austen on the podcast again next week. Fun fact. But more on that later. To wrap up Rudyard Kipling's biography, he kept writing prolifically for most of his life, and he was very vocal on political topics, imperialism, World War I, and other things as well. Also, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907 for his literary contributions. And at that time, he was actually the youngest person ever to have won it. He was 41. He died in 1936 at age 70 as a result of a hemorrhage and complications after surgery. And then his ashes were buried next to Charles Dickens in Westminster Abbey. Now, as far as the writing of Captain's Courageous... So this happened in 1896, the last year that the Kipling family was living in the U.S. And not surprisingly, this is Kipling's only novel set entirely in North America. Now, it was published after the family moved back to England. So it was published serially first in both an American and a British magazine, and then was published in a single volume afterwards in 1897. So what is this book about? Our story is set at the end of the 19th century, and our unlikely hero is a 15-year-old boy named Harvey Chain Jr., the son of a multi-millionaire railroad tycoon in California. So Harvey and his mother are on board an ocean liner in the Atlantic, headed for Europe, 
when Harvey is washed overboard one night and presumed drowned. But a little fishing schooner actually rescued him, and once Harvey comes to his senses, he finds himself amid a group of rough-and-ready fishermen that he has no idea how to relate to, having been brought up in the lap of luxury himself. Truth is, Harvey is pretty much your classic spoiled rich kid who never worked a day in his life and has no concept of showing people respect, and he has quite a lot to learn about life and about himself. But he's now stuck on this schooner called the We're Here, because the fishermen don't even believe him when he says he's the son of a millionaire who would reward the schooner for rescuing Harvey. And even if they did believe him, the fishermen are in the middle of their fishing season off the coast of Newfoundland and aren't about to go back home until the season is over. So Harvey has to stick it out on the We're Here amid this crew of zealous, unsophisticated seamen, and he has to learn the ways of the schooner and become a decent crewman himself if he's going to last in this place. So that's what happens. He he has a rough start, but once he starts settling in and learning the terminology and the tasks of fishermen, he begins to be able to pull his own weight on board and actually be of some help. And so the novel chronicles Harvey's learning process and the various adventures of the We Are Here during its season at sea for several months, until it finally returns to shore at its home base of Gloucester, Massachusetts, and Harvey is able to contact his parents and show them how much he's grown as a person. He's learned how to work hard and work as a member of a team, and he's learned the importance of respect and friendship. Now, this is an adventure novel, a novel of the high seas. And because of this, and because it's a coming-of-age story about a boy learning to behave like a man, it's traditionally viewed as kind of a book for kids, especially boys. And I wouldn't dispute that necessarily, but I think it's more than that. This book sounds like a pretty simple tale about the value of hard work and the process of growing up, but it also contains some intriguing thematic undercurrents that make the story a lot more nuanced than at least I was expecting when I first read it. So let's take a look. It's, it's not that Captain's Courageous isn't about hard work and growing up, but in many ways, those themes get worked out right at the beginning of the book, in the first two chapters, really. In chapter one, Harvey washes overboard, gets rescued by the We're Here, backtalks the schooner's captain, and gets punched in the nose, which does him more good than any words could have. Uh, patrons actually got to enjoy that chapter with me as I read it aloud in their preview episode last month. So listeners, if you're not an Unknown Friends supporter and want to get in on the fun, patreon.com slash unknownfriends. It's easy to join. So in chapter one, Harvey gets rudely ejected from his old life. And in chapter two, he pretty much embraces the new life of labor and comradeship. I'm not saying there's no more growth for Harvey after chapter two, but the main transformation has more or less happened once we reach chapter three. And the rest of the book is the adventures of the We're Here 
and just sort of solidifying the change that has already happened in Harvey. Now, many people see this and view it as a problem with the book. They say Captain's Courageous is not structured well. It loses steam too fast. Kipling put all the conflict right at the beginning and then just kind of sat back and took the rest of the novel to to bask in the experience of life on a fishing schooner. I don't think this is fair. If, if the story Kipling had intended to tell was just about Harvey learning hard work and respect, and he could accomplish that in the space of two chapters, he would have just written a short story, not a novel. He knew how to write short stories. No, his purpose, I think, is much bigger than just Harvey's transformation. He is interested in the experience of life at sea, and he's not just idealizing that life. He clearly is intrigued by the the culture and atmosphere of the fishing schooner, but he's also very aware of the dangers of this way of life. And this is one of the major themes he's exploring throughout the rest of the book after Harvey joins the crew of the We're Here. Even though it's a fairly lighthearted book, death shows up again and again and again throughout Harvey, for instance, replaces a crew member that was lost overboard. Uh, Later on, the weir here is very nearly run down by an ocean liner, and the liner does, in fact, run down a nearby fishing boat, killing almost everyone on board. There's danger after danger in this life on the high seas, and while Kipling shows the fishermen great respect for their willingness to, to live this life and confront deadly peril on a daily basis, at the same time, he shows what a great cost there is to this life. Near the end of the story, we get a scene after the schooners have all come home from the fishing season, and there is a, uh, a memorial service on shore where someone reads aloud all the names of all the men who were lost that season. And the number of widows is incredibly sobering. When the name of the crewman he replaced is read, Harvey himself is so affected, he he feels sick and passes out. And we get this reminder of the strangeness of life, the fact that Harvey should have died when he was washed overboard from the steamer, but he was miraculously saved and stepped into the place of a young man who wasn't miraculously saved. So Harvey has this kind of shadow throughout the book, the the shadow of this crew member who didn't survive. So the long and short of what I'm trying to say is Captain's Courageous is, in some sense, a glorification of the hard life at sea where men take bold risks and are willing to sacrifice for each other. But at the same time, Kipling recognizes the shadow of this life or the cost of it. The fact that for nearly every man who survives, another man is lost. So is this way of life beautiful or ugly? It's surprisingly hard to say. Now, in contrast to life on board the We're Here, Kipling also presents us with the life of a railroad magnate, Harvey's father, the millionaire. 
And we can understand this contrast in several different ways. On the one hand, it's a contrast between an old America and a new America. Or you could say between East Coast and West Coast. We have the time-honored tradition of fishermen in the North Atlantic versus the cutting-edge business practices and lifestyle of a wealthy Californian entrepreneur. These are two vastly different worlds that are both part of the United States at the turn of the century, and they're both portrayed in Captain's Courageous. And in some sense, they are merged at the end of the book, but that's difficult to do. Personally, I found the last chapter or two of the book to be the most fascinating, because that's where this conflict between different values and lifestyles really comes to a head. Harvey's father is a remarkably complex character with good and bad qualities. He's a self-made man who appreciates the independence and work ethic of the fishermen who have transformed his son, but he also has some other values that the fishermen don't have. There's this kind of ideal of success and wealth, the, the American dream, you could say, and Harvey Chain Sr. is quite determined to give that life to his son. Success for him is not just defined as becoming a real man and, you know, developing one's character, but also as achieving worldly success. And as you can guess, this is a little uncomfortable for the reader if, if they're paying attention to what Kipling is doing. I think just as he both glorified and expressed uneasiness about life on the high seas, similarly, he praises and questions the American dream of prosperity. And lastly, one specific thing that stood out to me in all this was the different types of education that Harvey needs. So on the fishing schooner, he learns respect and comradeship and a work ethic, specifically for manual labor we're talking about. And when I started reading the book, I thought this was going to be presented as kind of a complete education. When the schooner comes back to shore and Harvey's reunited with his parents, they will find him a man. Well, that's not what happens. Harvey's father is very pleased with the character qualities he has gained in his adventure, but Mr. Chain does not view them as sufficient by any means. He wants Harvey to now go to college to get book learning. Um, the practical life experience type of education isn't enough in his mind. And I mean, that's I think that's fair. Well, I believe there are different educational paths best suited to different goals in life. But the basic point stands, I would say, that... Whatever your goals, you need some kind of theoretical as well as practical education. But what complicates this is Harvey Chain Sr.'s motives behind wanting his son to get a college education. His purpose isn't really to develop the boy's mind and heart, but to make him a cunning businessman and teach him how to outdo his competition. That's problematic. So 
what is the conclusion? Kipling doesn't give us a clear one. That's why I think this novel is so much more than just an adventure story for boys. It starts there, but then it complicates everything by revealing a potential for both good and bad in each of the spheres of life it depicts. And so it ultimately forces us readers to wrestle with these things ourselves. There's no formula for life that we can just conform to thoughtlessly. I I think the subtitle of the novel is maybe more important than it might seem at first blush. The full title is Captain's Courageous, A Story of the Grand Banks. And although the Grand Banks most obviously refers to the fishing ground, the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, where the weir here passes its fishing season, I think this is also definitely a reference to wealth. Harvey's millionaire father is a man of grand banks, you could say, grand bank accounts. And the central tension in this novel is between these two ways of life that both have merits and drawbacks. So I do recommend it. There's more to this book than meets the eye. Overall, it is very clean, but I will say that the abundance of obscure fishing terminology and dialects could just be confusing to younger readers, uh, but it's certainly appropriate for middle grader or high school readers. It is um, politically incorrect in many ways, but I am not even going to touch that. It is what it is. It's certainly a novel that gives you a lot to think about if you take it seriously. So if this sounds like a story that you would find interesting, I commend it to you. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you come back next week for the return of Jane Austen on the podcast, as I mentioned earlier. Next Wednesday, I will be discussing her delightful novel, Northanger Abbey, which is kind of unique among all her novels in its tone. It's the most lighthearted, you could almost say flippant, of her novels, and it is highly entertaining. If you are a patron of Unknown Friends, be sure to listen to your bonus episode previewing the month of October, which was posted today, because in the episode I read aloud the first two chapters of Northanger Abbey to give you a taste for the novel. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that, and I hope you patrons enjoy listening to it. If you're not yet a patron and you're interested in supporting the Unknown Friends podcast and getting access to bonus content like these monthly preview episodes, be sure to check out the Unknown Friends Patreon page at patreon.com slash unknownfriends. Thanks for tuning in today, and as always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayandproductions.com. See you next week. Thank you.